Throughout its kind of political life, paradoxically, the family has been in crisis, like, <laughs> basically the whole time. Like, the thing about the family is that we say, oh, no, um, like, it's dying, you know, and that's actually part of how it operates. That's part of its power. Right. It's for both neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly episode just for patrons, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I am here today with our guest, Sophie Lewis, who is the author of the book Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, which just came out uh, in paperback this month. It was originally released in 2019. But we have Sophie here today. Sophie, welcome to the show. And thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you, B. I'm a huge fan of the show and a proud patron, and I'm incredibly honored. <laughs> really, really happy to be here. Well, it's so it's so long overdue. I'm so glad to finally have you on the show. I asked Sophie to come on to talk about their work in the context of the latest restrictions to abortion access in the United States, but not because of their work specifically on gestation and pregnancy, but because more broadly... From my, in my perspective, Sophie's thinking and writing touches on these logics and cultures of a sort of eugenic, bioconservative feminism. And I find, Sophie, your utopian critiques of the family are a really valuable perspective to look at all sorts of things, not just pregnancy and gestation and surrogacy, but a whole host of different things under the political economy of health capitalism. So we read uh, your book, Full Surrogacy Now, in the Death Panel Reading Group last fall. But for the listeners who uh, were not part of Reading Group and who don't know your work, can you give us the bird's eye view you of, you know, Sophie Lewis's body of work and research? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, thanks for, for that opportunity. I suppose I, um, I, I'm a recovering academic or something. You know, I, <laughs> I, uh, I fell out uh, mercifully of the academic industrial complex, more or less. I suppose I still have a toenail in there. But um, I, I've been very sort of nomadic in terms of my trajectory. The, the, the common theme throughout, you know, moving in between completely different disciplines has been an interest in anti-work politics mm -hmm. and a critical perspective on, on nature. Um, and my, my PhD was originally going to be something very sort of uh, abstract and sort of cyborg eco-Marxist about how anti-work and anti-nature might connect uh, and it, it didn't have any real like uh, <laughs> uh, purchase on 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 much but I, and I'm not really a um, a philosopher type person I, I I prefer to sort of you know look at pieces of culture of you know pieces of heterosexual culture pieces <laughs> of reality that someone once told me it feels like I I don't know have a bit of an alien perspective on actually that's how I got my book deal uh, an editor at Verso said that um, a blog post I'd written on a heterosexual 
dating reality TV show felt like I was an alien who'd come down to sort of <laughs> give the bad news about. Um, so basically, I but the the common theme seems to be a kind of denaturalizing, but also at the same time, kind of anti-work perspective. That might sound really abstract, but the, the basically the case study that I tripped up on in the middle of a random conversation in the pub was quote unquote surrogacy, right? So that's a word that, you know, it has a very everyday meaning for people. Mm -hmm. It means, you know, a pregnancy that quote unquote someone else <laughs> is doing. Um for you or something you know and and I mean that's in a sense like I'm not disputing that it's you know it's real <laughs> but immediately when I kind of thought about the concept I I had all kinds of questions about why in culture and academia we were accepting so much about what this concept says about itself and what the industry of contract pregnancy says about itself and mm. I yeah I wanted to know why we immediately agree that a baby is made, you know, for someone <laughs> at all, you know? Right. Um, and yeah, and I think this connects massively with themes on the show uh, of uh, disability liberation and eugenics and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, the kernel of my interest in this word surrogacy is actually not, um, and I think people sometimes misunderstand my book at, um, mm -hmm. or assume it's going to, it's it's actually not really a book about, you know, surrogacy, about um, the ethics of uh, becoming a parent or, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's yeah, really... You know, um, Emily Oster writing a parenting book and what's the best way to do an anti-capitalist surrogacy and, you know, align your morals and values with your desire to purchase a baby. <laughs> That's exactly right. Unfortunately, people do actually want me quite a lot to tell them um, how to do surrogacy as a gay couple or something. And I have no views whatsoever on that. Like literally a smooth <laughs> brain, like no, <laughs> no views, no opinions. Um, but I am really interested in the politics of, I guess, what I call the gestational workplace, which um, is an interesting thing to think about in itself because, um, you know, the the naturalized household is a gestational workplace, but so are other places where gestating people go and exist, right? And then so right. are the waged gestational places, um, the sort of clinics and dormitories of contract pregnancy where, where, you know, surplus value is being produced through a pregnancy if you want to be kind of nerdy about it. So I'm really interested in how we might think about um you know, just dating in a way that that pays attention to the kind of uh, the labor of it without um, dignifying labor, right? Kathy Weeks is is so good at that in her book, um, which is actually quite old now at this point, the problem with work at saying mm -hmm. that, you know, to describe something as work is not moral praise. It's just a reminder. It's not moral praise. <laughs> um, I love the death panel for its you know, consistency with with its rage against the reduction of um, even, you know, left politics um, to the justification of life through labor, you know. Um, oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. It's such a huge compliment. Yeah. No, it's, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, a little bit, you know, I'm hoping that I manage to make myself shut up a bit because there's so much <laughs> I have to learn here. Um, 
I mean, nervously, I do tend to go on and on, but, you know, I'm not someone with the skills that um, your collective has to kind of um, wade through, you know, loads and loads of policy, loads and loads of legal um, and political kind of bump, as I would call it, with my weird British vocabulary. <laughs> and uh, it's it's important, you know, work that I, yeah, that I'm hoping, like with the reading group, um Will, will, you know, inform me, you know, what what the uses of full surrogacy now and related texts, obviously it was indebted to so many and is in collaboration with, you know, a small but growing cluster of 21st century sort of trans Marxist family abolitionists. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I did a good job there of saying what, what my work is about. Basically, I'm yeah, I'm a sort of, you know, I'm a writer for hire at this point, And I'd like to talk about, um, you know, utopian horizons of, you know, anti-work and the queer care commune. Um, and I talk about all kinds of things uh, <laughs> through that lens, including octopuses and um, uh, right. you know, um, reality TV shows. <laughs> all sorts of things that tend to um, make people lose their minds. I mean, it's I really am excited to talk to you about about your work, too, because I feel like so often the conversation around this book has been incredibly reductive, right? You had this sort of impression where when they, when it came out, just from the title alone, like Feminism Against Family is the subtitle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember people freaking out just before there was really any information about what the book was like, oh, my God, what is, you know, what is Sophie Lewis writing about? They want to come in and, and you know, yeah. mess up like the family structure. And this is the the American workers legacy. And, you know, they've got, you know, we've got this great history of the family in America. And like, how could you do this? And and it's this um, it, it's almost just like a reaction to a projection of what your work actually is and does. And people don't even often engage with what you're actually talking about. And I remember the first time I came across your work, I was in the process of applying for social security disability insurance. And I read the piece that you wrote in the New Inquiry in 2017, Amniotechnics, which actually is the last chapter of this book. And I remember at the time I was working on these awful questionnaires. So when you apply for SSDI for disability um, welfare support in the US, you basically immediately are buried in mountains of paperwork. And you have to answer all of these questions to try and give uh, the disability evaluators the material that they've decided that they need in order to determine if you're verifiably deserving of government support to not work, right? Mm -hmm. And I was so surprised going through the process um, how much of the legally disabled identity was really contingent on this relation to work. So I I loved actually getting to read your writing and thinking through some of the ideas that you toss around, particularly around, um, you know, what social reproduction is used for mm-hmm. within society and the not just revolutionary means of social reproduction, but the, um, you know, the oppressive means. Uh, I think you say 
uh, here we go. The work of social reproduction brings forth new hope for revolutionary struggle, but also produces new lives for oppressors to suck and crush. And it just it it really changed the way I I thought about the process of the making of my legally disabled identity mm-hmm. and of the questions that were being asked, which a lot of them were framed around trying to get this financial picture of what my biological family support system was and just how much was the government as this uh, superstructural sort of bigger body, right? This this manager of the body politic, how much the government was um, responsible for and how much my um, biological kin was responsible for. And it felt like this very strange way of sort of using uh, data and forms and all the awful things you have to do to get social welfare, welfare supports to kind of reinforce this idea that um, a disabled person is always someone who must be dependent on uh, on a family structure. And, you know, I wonder if you could just sort of talk about what, like, could you talk about like what the idea of full surrogacy actually is? Because as I was saying, you know, so many people get this wrong. And I think your conception of where you're um, trying to go and the questions you're trying to ask in this book and also just in your work in general, right? Um, yeah. Because I don't want you to feel like beholden to have to like just discuss the book. But um, can we walk through sort of what the full surrogacy framework actually is looking at and what that lens actually is? Of course, totally. Um, maybe I should just slip in um, because I forgot to say. <laughs> um, I do, I have been asked to kind of clarify in a pamphlet quite short 20,000 words um, which will be coming out next year what what family abolition um, might mean and and I'm not the only one working on a project like that me um, O'Brien is also writing um, I think a slightly longer book for Pluto on on the abolition of the family um, and everyone uh, interested in uh, what the slogan abolish the family has meant um, in a very kind of rigorous Marxist kind of history of the the family form should read Emmy O'Brien's uh, Endnotes <laughs> essay um, in volume five of Endnotes. Um, so yeah, but that said, um, yeah, full surrogacy now is it's it's in a sense a little bit of a philosophical point, um, and people don't have patience for that. It's true, as, <laughs> as you say, um, there is a bit that there has been a bit of a problem with title only readers um, and uh, sort of jumping to conclusions about about what I might be saying. I, I will say though that um, it was <laughs> it's not a troll. I'm very um, a, clueless in many ways about about what uh, the things that come out of my mouth will will evoke for people and and I'm fine with that um but I I uh I guess I I actually did misjudge the extent to which people do not consider the family in the 21st century the main kind of object or one of the main sort of um targets of feminist and queer movement right like in the 60s mm-hmm. honestly it was pretty uh, basic, you know, it was a kind of basic thing that um, gay liberation and women's liberation seeks to overcome that unit of social reproduction. Um, and because I, I sometimes get so far down certain archives and and nerd out reading certain things, it, it's almost like I 
I forget that that's not where we're at in the 21st century. There's been a huge amount of forgetting of that. The mm-hmm. 80s very successfully, you know, erased uh, the possibility of critique of the private nuclear household um, and critique of the family. Um, just to mm-hmm. bring up Kathy Weeks again, because she actually has turned <laughs> to um, abolition of the family um, herself, which is kind of exciting. Um, she has this great phrase that she's riffing on the fact that um, abolition of the family is the infamous proposal of the communists in the Communist Manifesto. Um, You know, people may be familiar, if they're Marx nerds, I don't know, with the phrase, you know, abolition of the family, even the most uh, radical flare-up at this infamous proposal of the communists. And she says, uh, doing a kind of history of of the mid-20th century, that abolition of the family is the infamous proposal of the feminists, which... Feminists then immediately proceeded to try and walk back, right? So the project of Mm -hmm. feminism for almost 50 years at this point has actually, I mean, you know, feminisms, you know, but feminism in the kind of institutionalized mainstream sense has been walking back the the idea that it ever sought (laughs) to attack the family, right? Like I I even have slides to this effect when I teach on the subject where you can just, you know, I just come up with all the different utterances from Betty Friedan to Gloria Steinem to to Barbara Ehrenreich saying, no, 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 no. We want, we want more family, not less. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, I've just forgotten that, but, but what, okay, sorry. Full surrogacy is basically the idea that in a fully liberated, fully communized um, world, it would make no sense to be a surrogate in the sense we imagine today, because standing in for someone else um, and being kind of temporarily or permanently or some kind of combination of both, a kind of part of someone else and their life's reproduction would just be the basic state of things, right? We wouldn't think about um, things in terms of, you know, mine and yours to the extent that we do now because Mm -hmm. private property would have been abolished. And so being like a surrogate mother would have no meaning different from simply being a mother. Does that make sense? So, you know, right, yeah. yeah. So so that that's basically all I'm doing. You know, if if everyone like you you can only have surrogacy in the sense we understand it today in a colonial uh capitalist planet. You ha- where there are sort of uh where there is stratified reproduction to use the phrase of um oh my goodness, Shelley Colon. I almost forgot. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and uh you know, you have to have those kind of class stratifications that that sort of extract and pull up the the vital um labor the life producing kind of care labor of uh marginalized and racialized and sort of uh you know colonized populations um into the sort of households and families of the global north everywhere uh which 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 labor then actually produces paradoxically the illusion that 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 household that predominantly white family is natural like that's the kind mm-hmm. of incredible magical that's the sort of uh conjuring trick 
of the family um, that, you know, almost the more um, surrogate labor is pouring into it through its walls, if you like, if you imagine the kind of little house uh, that a child would draw, like the more outside, you know, quote unquote, non-biological input is actually occurring, the more autonomous it gets to look and think of itself <laughs> as, you know. And Melinda Cooper is not a family abolitionist, but she, in her book, Family Values, um, does a great job of showing how this this family, um, which, you know, I can have a go at defining if you want, but uh, interestingly, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, like, you know, persists, even though (laughs) definition is difficult and has material and political economic force, um, even though it's it's a kind of fictitious more than a real um, institution. (laughs) But she she shows how throughout its kind of political life, paradoxically, the family has been in crisis, like, (laughs) basically the whole time like the thing about the family is that we say oh no um like it's dying you know and that's actually part of how (laughs) it operates that's part of its power she shows for both neoliberalism and neoconservatism um yeah right and full surrogacy basically means yeah basically means you know equality uh small c communism um the queer care commune it means everybody belongs to everybody um you know, let every pregnancy be for everyone rather than, you know, for a small, small number of people who think that, you know, that that person basically belongs to them. It means it means, you know, it means utopia. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think so often one of the problems that you see when you start talking about family abolition just conceptually, because it's not it's not talking about the um forced breaking up of individual families. That's thinking about it on the wrong scale. It's thinking about things and how the family as a almost as like a vessel, right, that we we project meaning onto is used over and over um, in terms of governance or housing or access to medical care or access to food or access to shelter or access to safety. And it sort of stands in as this administrative burden, actually, for accessing survival. And so many people don't even get there, right? They're just thinking about it in terms of the very individual relationship to politics, which has become, you know, really the sort of flavor of the day since the 1980s. And in this sort of conservative turn, I think, especially in a lot of social movements that were happening in the 80s and 90s towards marriage equality. I mean, it's not just within the queer community, too. But, you know, I think after the ADA was passed, you really saw um, the marriage equality line and um, goal becoming like a really big deal within the disability community, which is fascinating because it's not like the ADA actually like fixed any of the things that were being agitated for before it was passed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the movement's energy and the movement's direction and the sort of quest for respectability and acceptance and inclusion and representation, I think, directed energy towards, you know, we really need to pursue marriage equality, which like absolutely in terms of the way that marriage penalties are used um, to kick people off of benefits, that's not 
good, right? We don't want that. But is marriage equality and the equal rights framework, right, under this sort of oppressive administrative burden of things having to run through the idea of the family when they're being like when we're distributing resources, you know, that's more like the the register that we're talking about family in. And so I think a lot of people just sort of are were, were trained or were habituated to thinking about things under the individualistic civil rights framework mm-hmm. of sort of me, myself, and my individual like right to something, um, which is a kind of like possessive relationship, right? It's it's a if you have the characteristics of a citizen in the United States, then you can see yourself as possessing and being entitled to certain rights. But as that definition of citizen uh, changes, right, it's not a it's not a static thing. It's not like every citizen can be put in and and substituted for someone else. We treat people very differently based on (laughs) what attributes they have and whether or not they qualify with this sort of you know, notion of individual liberty citizenship. And and so I think, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, in general, you would assume that people on the left would be really excited about an idea that started to discuss, you know, what are actually the sort of structures of how we allocate resource survival and why do we do it under this very... um sort of reductive and strange framework that we spend all this time pretending is nature, right? Which is the idea of sort of the natural biological heterosexual family. And and so often surrogacy is talked about almost as um, a privilege, right? And as you mentioned, it's a very like class stratified relationship. So, you know, the, the, I think the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that basically, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting way of thinking through the public commons, like who has access to the means of literal human reproduction and in what capacity does that like actually um, relate us to each other, right? Like these are the kinds of questions that I think as a left, as like a left movement or like a a group of people working towards liberation, these are questions we should absolutely be considering every time we're talking about a child tax credit or a, um, you know, pay people to have kids sort of like Mm -hmm. Brunig special, like whatever, (laughs) I don't know, like whatever they're peddling right now, the sort of pro natalist framework for how to build a better, uh, you know, maybe social Socialist America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of uh, the thing that's fascinating to me is sort of why are, why we're committed to holding on to this very restrictive framework, right? Because the, the framework of the family ultimately serves as this sort of rhetorical tool to limit political will and to limit um, the imagination of like what's possible under systems of like self-organization or even under like sovereign governance, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, that's all extremely well put. I, it, it sort of occurs to me that it, it makes no sense in us um, to endorse the family as a way of organizing um, social reproduction when one is opposed, you know, in theory to <laughs> class, right? How can, you know, how can you uh, endorse the private nuclear household and say that you are for a classless 
society you know on some level it it doesn't add up right it doesn't but 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 our imaginations i think have been pretty stunted because the naturalization um of the family is is intense right it, and it goes so far down it goes into our language it goes into all of our structures of feeling you know when we want to say that we feel love um, and commitment. We say, you know, you're like family to me or whatever. And that persists and functions despite the fact that, you know, what it might mean um, in if you really think about it to describe something as like family, it's pretty bleak, really. You know, something mm-hmm. being like family means, you know, if you look at statistics, you know, that there's a lot of uh, abuse going on there. You know, it's where, um, you know, most women get raped and murdered. It's where children get abused. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's a paradox, isn't it? But in, in fact, it is the family that is a utopian idea. And I don't kind of um, begrudge people that, right? I have it too. I have a huge yearning um, for a kind of, you know, um, something approaching unconditional care. You know, we all need to be immersed in care and autonomy. Um, And there is something about the way that the family has been made to to be the machine that produces the bourgeois individual right that like mm-hmm. there's a book from the 80s by Michelle uh, Barrett and Mary McIntosh called the anti-social family um, which does a great job at just sort of explaining this like you cannot have the family without the individual and vice versa um you know, the, the family is the machine for producing bourgeois individuals um and you know there's something about that that is you know, pretty attractive on some level, right? We we feel that the family is where we can be uniquely ourselves um, and we will also be sort of unconditionally um, cared for. There's a definition uh, of the family, which means it's the people who have to open the door to you. You know, they're obliged to socially mm-hmm. when, when, you, when you show up, you know? Of course, that you can then kind of poke lots of holes in that. But there's something about that that obviously, you know, cannot be discounted, right? We Like the desire for, you know, belonging, for, you know, um, uh, a bunch of people who make life matter or whatever. And, and, and all of that, you know, is what people, I think, um, are thinking of when they have a huge emotional reaction, right, to the proposition, if they have not heard it already, you know, uh, of let's do something else, let's, you know, let's abolish, let's, you know, what does abolish mean, you know, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, I feel like is always explaining that it's it's not simply a kind of um, smashing and setting fire to the prisons, although, of course, it is also that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's principally, like, in fact, that's the, that's the smallest piece, in a sense, of prison abolition. The biggest piece is the building of a world in which prisons are unthinkable, right? And, like, family abolition is, is as you sort of, thank you, <laughs> already kind of uh, specified, not at least not for me, and I don't really know anyone for whom this this is the case. Like, it is not a kind of, uh, you know, top-down, like, uh, uh, adjudication of who people should live with and who they shouldn't live <laughs> with and, like, you know, taking right. your, you know, your child away from you, et cetera. Like, it's more, it you know, that, that, that in itself is a kind of testimony to the, 
you know, the, the, the lack of imagination we have, the family is so naturalized, we can't imagine um, it being otherwise. I think it's actually harder to imagine um, the end of the family than the end of capitalism, you know, to riff on a really overquoted Frederick Jameson kind of quote, right? But like, it's because, you know, it, it, we're, we're in a kind of uh, war for survival in this kind of necropolitical like competitive landscape we think um that the the bubbles into which we retreat with our you know biogenetically imagined or legally sanctioned kin um are 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 refuges right from the police mm -hmm. um from the kind of violence of the work society and so on um but they're not. <laughs> but the family is not, a, um, a, you know, unpolitical. It's not set apart from that world. It is, in fact, if you like, kind of the opposite. It's the cell that kind of uh, manufactures workers for for the capitalist mm -hmm. economy. And of course, there's many other things as well. I'm not at all saying that like love and, you know, happiness and liberatory relationships do not exist within even, you know, bourgeois biogenetic, you know, private nuclear households. But what if we just kind of, you know, <laughs> imagine that it could be otherwise? Because, you know, mm -hmm. it's really not been going on that long that social reproduction has been privatized to this extent and care has been privatized to this extent. And if you if you want, you can also just look at the um you know, for instance, the history of the Freedman's Bureau in the United States in the wake of um, abolition, which imposed marriage um, mm -hmm. and imposed the private nuclear household um, on formerly enslaved people um, and, you know, did so for for specific kind of capitalist white supremacist reasons of, of disciplining populations um, such that they, you know, they can, in fact, be be biopolitically ordered, um, you know, for for the benefit of of the capitalist ruling class, and like, you know, <laughs> um, you know, w when something is all one has ever known, um, and the only place one has ever, you know, received comfort and care from, even if you know it was mixed up with abuse, let's say, it is really terrifying to imagine something else that has not been organized yet and which we have never known. But that's actually not a very good reason to to stick with one's knee-jerk reaction against it. And and I, I do quote this quite a lot, but my friend Alex says something amazing to me when he saw the emotional reactions taking place when I was first touring for surrogacy now. And 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 he said, wow, people get really upset when you suggest to them that they deserved more than they received when they were children, mm -hmm. you know, that they deserved more than they got. People, that actually really elicits, strangely enough, like a, a huge reaction in us, mm -hmm. I think, you know, like we maybe know it's true. <laughs> And that's why we get so angry. Right. No, you know? I mean, that that's the perfect way to put it. It's it reminds me of a story that Artie and I tell in our book um, or that's in the book now where we talk about um, a very early way that uh, welfare policy for people who were unhoused was discussed. 
And, you know, the, the, the framework was basically, you know, we could give these people the support that they need. And this is how much it might cost, right? Um, and this is what we might need to give to them in order for them to be uh, housed and clothed and sheltered and given food. You know, sort of this is what it would cost to allocate the, you know, this population resources for survival. But uh, allocating them those resources, these uh, people argued, were would raise the unhoused above the working class who were themselves living in substandard conditions, not being allocated the resources they need for survival. So out of this sort of um, very Darwinian, uh, almost like uh, survival of the fittest framework, right? Like how could we possibly extend um, this sort of generosity, um, this like a flourishing, right? To people who quote, don't deserve it, right? People who are, you know, out of the family or reject the family, people who reject work. And, um, you know, in the way that we sort of valorize the role of the worker as this one sort of sacrificial role, right? That the that the role of worker is both how to be a citizen and how to be, um, you know, a sort of free person with rights and and a worthy person in, in our sort of conception of like capitalist society, but that that position like must come with suffering, right? The worker is always suffering, um, it, it, you know, for the greater good. And we measure people based on how much they contribute, like how much they put in is how much they get out. And it's this very like Rawlsian, um, you know, understanding of personhood, which pervades uh, society and pervades the way that we've designed the uh, systems that we use to allocate resources that we pretend are not biased or not riddled with these kinds of assumptions, right, that build in these uh, moralistic values about what's good and what's worthy and what's deserving of survival and care. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating because so often the family as this gatekeeping mechanism, which is why I called it, you know, a a conceptual administrative burden earlier, the family acts as this sort of tool of measurement too, right? Like we think of someone as being worthy of investment and potentially redeemable, for example, if maybe they're um, maybe they're unhoused, but they have a loving family, mm-hmm. you know, but they're they're they must be a good person because they've got, you know, these biological kin connections to call upon. And, you know, it, it's you like the family is used both to confer these sort of additional judgments to justify not acting right because if we're if we're saying you know the the problem is that working families and the unhoused families for example, in this example I was giving earlier, um, that not none of them have the resources they need for survival. So we need to give e- each of these people in our society the resources that they need for survival. Yeah. You know, versus the family purse framework, which is you know part of the whole way that we've structured the way we talk about spending on on social safety net supports now um, since the seventies. The idea that it's a one in one out. We we get out what we pay in as taxpayers and people who are not taxpayers, they get what they get, you know, and it's survival of the fittest. This is completely all, um, all of these different frameworks of like subjection, I think as, as Dean Spade would say, are 
are are all translated through the framework of the family. So when, you know, when I think of your work, Sophie, I think of like really like some of, you know, some of the more meaningful challenges I've seen to not just the sort of uh, like social and labor aspects of this, but the entire way that we like conceive of the body politic as a whole, right, kind of needs to be ripped up and and thrown out. And I, I and I really do like appreciate like a lot of the things that you write about and talk about because it, it actually does try and go there. And so few people are ever willing to kind of go that far and attack that hard because the, I think, you know, as you, you said, there's this fundamental fear that with the removal of this signifier that's used for so many things, right? Like, what do we have left to save us? Um, and the truth is that, like, what's left is that we have each other, but like so much of our of our conversations and our culture and the ways that we think about the stuff is like completely tied back into the no like when there's no government when there's no one to save you like what you have is like mom and dad and going back home and you know this kind of mm-hmm. uh return very conservative like revanchist return to morals and values and this puritanical um you know survival of the fittest family and it's just um you know, I think it's wonderful to be able to just think bigger and imagine something completely different because there's absolutely nothing in nature and the world around us that says that we have to do it this way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and there are, you know, there are obviously different moves I make um, if we're, you know, if we're still kind of referring to full surrogacy now, which, it, you know, in some ways I did want to to, to be seen as a family abolition book, but um I, you know, this is why I have, I'm writing a follow-up pamphlet clarifying, you know, it's, it's like full surrogacy now is a, in some ways, a counterintuitive way into that politics, right? It, it, it is not at all obvious how, um, looking at, you know, what I call gestational labor and the literal kind of, you know, manufacture of fetuses <laughs> is, um, you know, it fits into that politics, but um, but yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying kind of thinking about um, including with reference to all the things I've learned from from Death Panel, um, you know, how to formulate in a snappy way like the case, you know, for for abolition of the family in in this next in this next book, and then um, at the same time, I'm trying to work on a project on anti-liberatory feminisms i have i have five you know the, right now there's a whole bunch of books coming out on white feminism and um you know many of those not not all of them um are incredibly good and in general i would say the the trend is totally welcome um but uh, or or and <laughs> i i actually think <laughs> we need to um we need to be, you know, really imaginative and precise and broader when we cri- criticize different forms of um, reactionary uh, gender politics. Some of, you know, uh, many of which uh, have understood themselves as feminism. So I, I'm, I'm actually working on a uh, a project that includes. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling about this because I think maternalist feminism uh, is is due for a much bigger kind of um, 
beating in a way <laughs> from the queer <laughs> left than it has generally received. I think we need to be more courageous. I guess this also connects to some of my thoughts about um, abortion um, politics, although they are not necessarily strategic thoughts or policy oriented thoughts, but they are kind of deeply felt um you know, thoughts about how much ground uh, the radical left has kind of given up and ceded, you know, um, mm -hmm. to uh, frameworks uh, that have been proposed by our enemies, right? And I think if we look at the history of, you know, maternalist feminism, as I just, as I just called it, like, um, a lot of things have been done, not just in the name of um, women, not just in the name of mothers even, um, but in the name of those things in, and feminism, right, um, that have been downright oppressive to not only kind of, you know, non-white populations, but also, and we never talk about this <laughs> in the 21st century, children, right? One, mm -hmm. one thing that like really, you know, I appreciate um, from the theorist uh, Christine Delphi, who is French, who I, I actually haven't read that much of, but she at one point points out that the struggles that existed for maternal rights um, at, in certain legislatures, you know, and of course, there's a lot um, that's very valid in the histories of, you know, for example, you know, lesbians struggling to uh, gain custody and, and custody rights and so on um, as part of feminism's history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all all women gaining any kind of custody rights over children was was, was a thing, obviously, in the 20th century. Um but she points out that actually, you know, we never say that this is a this is a struggle for kind of rights over another class of person, you know. Right. <laughs> right. And 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 I just yeah, I I wish that it were possible and that we were more courageous vis-a-vis -vis the kind of I guess you called it the Brunigs of the world or something, <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's actually terrifying me right now in a context where QAnon. TAnon, the kind of equivalent conspiracist <laughs> QAnon formation, specifically, uh, you know, about the 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 supposed like uh, conspiracy to to turn all children trans and so on. TAnon, um, the way they deploy in Anita Bryant style the slogan "Save Our Children," and the way mm -hmm. that this is actually succeeding to a far greater extent than it should at silencing. Any kind of, uh, you know, critique from the left uh, of this weaponization of the figure of the child and the, the innocence, specifically sexual innocence of, the, of this figure of the child. It, it, it is chilling my blood, actually. <laughs> um, and I, I this is one of the few environments, this, this podcast, I mean, where I feel, um, you know, more or less kind of. <laughs> you know, safe broaching this topic because I feel in good hands, you know, it it strikes me that that piece, which I don't want to deny um, or, or skim over, I want to actually find a way to go into it and make a case for being brave about it, of children's liberation as the history, as part of the history of, mm -hmm. of abolition of the family politics. You know, it is I never say this, but kind of needed now more than ever, you know, the left loves to say now more than ever. But like, you know, right now we're, we're, we're in a pandemic where, um, you know, uh, 
the people that we call children are being produced in conditions of almost never before seen privatization, right? Like isolation. Um, mm -hmm. And this seems to be a really important juncture for thinking about the agency of, of children and the political will and right to self-determination and autonomy of children, um, including, you know, um, their their ability to to say, you know, how and with whom they want to live. Right. No, absolutely. And I mean, I'm so glad that you, you went there because I think that it's something I have thought about mostly, I think, starting because of the way that the discussion of children was being framed in the conversation around school reopenings and the way that people like, um, you know, Martin Kulldorff of the Great Barrington Declaration would talk about children um, in the context of COVID, you know, the way that children were framed as superhuman, you know, all of a sudden disabled um, and chronically ill children, like, poof, they are gone from the political imaginary of what a child is, like vulnerable children were disappeared, right? Um, you know, their own agency, their own thoughts, feelings, and emotions have been abstracted into epidemics of child depression and suicide, right? And we're making these declarations about, you know, learning loss and what uh, is happening socially to all these children because of the, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, that's just the the baseline of it, right? Because then beyond that, I think you get into the question of what's going on with uh, abortion access and especially what's going on with all of these healthcare bills trying to criminalize uh, trans healthcare for children, right? right? And trying to really dictate the relationship that a child is allowed to have with their teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Or with their peers or with their parent and with their medical provider. And, you know, all of these, I think, you know, the <laughs> all of these things I'm also obviously thinking of because of like Jules Gill Peterson's work, which is the book we're doing right now in Reading Group. Mm -hmm. And she's actually going to be coming on Sunday to talk about it. So... This is, you know, I think this is like if you're listening to this now, like Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern, get in the death panel discord because Jules will be there. Live discussion. Definitely um, do that. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, right now, like what's going on is that, you know, children are also being asked to take on care duties. Mm -hmm. So many children have been orphaned. Mm -hmm. So many children have lost a parent, mm -hmm. a guardian, a loved one. There are disproportionate amounts of adults dying mm -hmm. in very specific marginalized communities, mm -hmm. right? And the sort of margins to the middle approach, right? Like if we're actually trying to take like a, a, a black feminist left politic mm -hmm. and look at the current landscape of like where we're at in society and like what we can do to maybe help and save some people along the way, right? Like natalist policies should never be the first thing on the table, mm -hmm. right? Like we should be looking at the absolute margins, which are frankly, children, mm -hmm. right, who are treated like property, who are treated like they don't have any autonomy, who are treated, um, you know, completely as these sort of possessions of the state until you reach the sort of legal age where you can be certified an adult and handed this the sort of, you know, beacon of, of choice, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the American inheritance. Mm -hmm. This is what we all inherit under capitalism mm -hmm. is 
choice with a capital C, you know, and choice is the one thing that as a society, we specifically deny to children Mm -hmm. and not other, you know, quote unquote, non-persons. And, you know, it's just, I I think, (laughs) you know, it's no wonder that your work scares people and people are like, well, you know, Sophie Lewis, like Sophie Lewis is coming to queer your cyborg baby and abolish your family. Like, you know, the kind of like it's 11 p.m. Where are your kids TV spot? Um, and, and I do think, you know, these kind of these kind of discussions, right? Like they happen because of what, you know, what my co-host Phil always uh, calls hegemony 101, right? Like you um, are asking very difficult questions and you're demanding a lot of imagination to people. And that really scares, um, you know, it scares up the system. It like agitates things and that's fantastic. And right now what we're looking at with COVID with especially all these children who are now becoming caregivers, who are working on top of caregiving duties, who are often frontline workers, right? Who are taking the lowest paid, you know, paid jobs. It's, I think in like so many ways, like Mm -hmm. inappropriate for like 80 year old people in the Senate to be like debating whether or not kids should be Mm -hmm. saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt Mm -hmm. in, you know, their college experience in their pursuit of an education. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but you, you know, you have to be willing to go there and it's like a really difficult topic to grapple with because once you pull one brick, you know, you really see like the whole structure, um, you know, under this different light. And I think people are honestly scared and I, and I get that. And, you know, they may have certain comforts or, or qualities to their identity, which give them some insulation and protection from that and some material distance from the impact of that when it hits the ground, right? Survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. We can't save everyone, but you know, that's absolutely just as imaginary as, um, so many of the other things that we've thought up, like, you know, mm-hmm. having uh, the deficit or, you know, the the idea of borders, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And why people are just not willing to go there when it when you're talking about autonomy and radical redefinitions of personhood to include, you know, people who are non-persons, to include disabled people, the unemployed, the non-working, you know, drug users, mm-hmm. like the subaltern of any kind, and also especially children, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. And maybe just a really quick note, because it, it keeps coming up right now, and I, I don't know how attached I am to the term uh, utopia. It's obviously in my handle at the moment, but you know, I um, I mean a decolonial critical tradition of utopianism. And what you just said about kind of removing that one brick and seeing the whole thing kind of crumble, that's what I mean by that method. It's a method. It's it's a, a recognition right. that things are made, not given, right? It's an orientation towards the, the quote-unquote natural and the naturalized that understands it's you know, uh, fictitiousness. That's that's all I really mean by the sort of utopian orientation in struggle. It's not a kind of imaginary flight of fantasy building an island um, or a castle <laughs> on the horizon or something where there is no more political antagonism and, you know, where everything is okay. It's actually just, I mean it as a methodology, as an orientation of refusal towards the present. And that can partly be done 
Um, yes, I embarrassingly stand, I guess, the cyborg manifesto and that very kind of, I don't, you know, I, I sorry, I say embarrassingly because, you know, I actually don't really know what you're talking about with when you quote the kind of, uh, Sophie Lewis is going to queer your cyborg baby. You know, I, I, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, um, but, but, but I, you know, I am embarrassingly earnest, you know, I, it does some, I, um, you know, I, I'm really into the biological nerdiness of 1980s era Donna Haraway, who is actually looking at the sort of molecules and organisms on this planet and sort of using the the sort of, you know, quote unquote, scientific kind of uh, truths that are still emerging and still completely like un you know, incomplete to, 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 to say that, you know, the things we believe about uh, to, to justify our property logics towards one another are, are completely untenable, right? We are, you know, she says reproduction in the human species doesn't really occur, you know, and this is not the only reason we, this is certainly not, you know, the basis to be family abolitionists, but it doesn't hurt, you know, be like actually getting mm-hmm. into the sort of the, the biological kind of wondrousness and weirdness um, of our bodies, which is also kind of what I'm doing in, in amniotechnics in the final chapter, just actually getting into how, you know, mythological and, uh, you know, sort of made up our, our separation from one another actually is. And, and, you know, and then also not romanticizing that, you know, and right, understanding right. that it's fucking scary and like, and kind <laughs> of a bit brutal, especially in, a, you know, a society constituted, on violence, you know, being um, porous and at stake to basically everyone else is not exactly um, a pretty proposition. You know, it doesn't sound super safe and it's not <laughs> like, but but actually getting mm-hmm. into the sort of, you know, the the biology of reproduction is not something that, that feminists and queers and you know, radicals should be afraid of. For a while, I think there was an attitude, um, particularly in feminism, that, you know, the biological is kind of bad and everything that is sort of uh, predicated on the biology, on on biology can only be oppressive. Um, And of course, there is, you know, Mm -hmm. there's massive edifices um, of oppressive um, practice and ideology premised on 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 versions of biology, you know, but 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 what I think you know is also possible is is you know is being kind of um, you know decolonial black feminist scientists who sort of refuse to seed that ground and say okay you know um, you you think private property can be premised on biogenetics? Well, no, it can't. You know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. just 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 FYI, you know, and. Um, yeah, things like that, basically. Um, and, you know, of course, we haven't really touched so much on whether the the, the language of um, abolition of the family, um, it has been taken up massively in black liberation struggles. And this is something that people pointed out to me rightly, you know, hadn't been engaged in full surrogacy now sufficiently. And I was, you know, very grateful for those conversations and the learning that emerged 
from them. And I, um, I've sort of been learning from Tiffany Latabo King, who who's the author of um, Black Shoals, among other mm-hmm. things. And she's, you know, she she's, um, you know, one of the, uh, the the black radicals I know who sort of believes in and struggles towards uh, family abolition in those terms. Um, and in that language. Um, and of course, there are different perspectives uh, on this. But I think it's also possible to look at texts like Hortense Spiller's um, sort of canonical, you know, uh, mama's baby, papa's maybe, and respectfully and humbly and not trying to put words in Spiller's mouth, but to say, you know, that that actually the the grammar of kinship on the plantation that she's talking about is what I'm saying needs to be abolished and which I, I think she, you know, I, I don't, I don't see my project and hers as, as, you know, uh, as remotely kind of opposed. In fact, I'm indebted. I'm using spillers to, to talk about how, you know, uh, you know, maybe more hopefully in a weird way than, than, than spillers actually, you know, but, but I'm hoping that, you know, family abolition, um, as it, it can only make sense as a project of abolition of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and so that conversation is still unfolding. And I'm still kind of cognizant that like, you know, the language of family is massively important, particularly actually one of the main places I'm, I'm seeing, um, you know, calls for a different kind of language around it is is from you know Chicanx and kind of people who are immersed largely in the sort of uh refugees and sort of uh migrant struggles for whom the kind of the yeah the topos of family is sort of uh so emotive right now but at the same time you know even there like I would argue even there and maybe most of all there right now at the border where the, the sort of naturalized unit of biological family, which is even being state tested for DNA, mm-hmm. for kind of like legitimation of the idea that that, that it is a, you know, a, a valid family um, that, that is being admitted or not admitted. You know, that is actually the site where the, the ideological apparatus uh, of family um could also be tackled because is it not precisely like you know migrant struggles and anti-border movements in 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 their radical forms throughout throughout you know the decades that have sort of shown us that it is it is too much of a concession to kind of uh to to hold up families and to limit our rhetoric to you know keep families together stop family separations and so on because implicitly there's this other there um, who perhaps yeah. it is a bit more acceptable to turn away. <laughs> you know, that is not something we want to do. We want to keep people together. We want to abolish borders. We want to not put people in cages, whether they are children or not, you know? And like, I think, I think sort of thinking about that and how that, how that works and how it actually eugenically, um, inflects, you know, so much of our everyday moral, like, reasoning like i was watching a tv show about a murder game uh squid game you know oh yes yeah. <laughs> i mean um this this could, i could also have named almost any other cultural object <laughs> but at the end you know there is this kind of uh conversation about 
who should survive, um, you know, based on uh, what they have to live for, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and the idea is that, you know, if you have um, dependents, you know, if you have children, if you have an elderly mother who you, you, you have to take care of, um, who is sick, then, then you have more reason to live, you know, mm-hmm. than other people. And on the face of it, like, I mean, you know, it's maybe hard to see what's kind of wrong with that kind of reasoning. But I really want the left to get better at rejecting this. It fucking chills my blood, B, you know? When, when someone oh, yeah. dies, um, they are always kind of described as, you know, a mother or whatever. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> like if, if, if they weren't, um, would it be less bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Are we is, are we actually willing to say that? Because I think ultimately we are. That we, we live in a society oh. where if your aunt, if you don't have a family, actually your life is less is less meaningful. Yeah, and is less worthwhile. Well, and, and also we we make a lot of decisions for people about who is allowed to have a family too. I mean, you know, I think just looking back at the history of eugenics as uh, like capital E eugenics, you know, the literal eugenics movement, the the entire purpose, right, was to create a dispassionate and scientific way to determine who was worthy of the task of reproduction. And, you know, for so long, the way that we've like, conceptualized disability as this kind of disqualifying characteristic that prevents you from being allowed to engage in a family, right? You know, it's the our entire way that we like value people and value people's contributions to like our society is through this eugenic lens, right? Because it's all about, you know, what if you as the individual are taken away, right? What do your eugenic and debt burdens become? Yeah. And like the unit of the family is this kind of liability clause. It's a loophole, right? And once, you know, if someone dies and their eugenic and debt burdens are then turned on to the responsibility of the rest of the body politic of society, then, you know, then that would be a bad thing, right? So then we we sort of reinforce not only the heritability of characteristics, both stigmatized and valorized, but we reinforce the heritability of fates and outcomes and destiny in this absolutely, um, you know, farcical, completely non-scientific way. And there's, you know, then resources are allocated and life chances and chances at survival and slow death are allocated accordingly. And, you know, and I think, you know, the discussion around family abolition is really a discussion around is this system of valuation that is incredibly, you know, basically incredibly violent and destructive and based on assumptions that are abjectly awful, right? Is this necessary to dictate the morality of our political system? And under capitalism, the family, especially neoliberal capitalism, the family has become like the primary means of of dictating authority and dictating power Mm -hmm. and reproducing power at the individual Mm -hmm. level. And to 
to abandon that framework to to say you know to to look at policy to look at policy proposals with a family abolitionist lens is really telling it's a really good way to figure out what some of the material effects are going to be downstream on people's lives like you know for example the debate over not to get like super nerdy for a second but like the debate over the reconciliation bill and this vote in congress over over infrastructure spending like the long-term care component of this, which was initially supposed to be, you know, like $440 billion over 10, you know, some bullshit, like that's been cut down. That's been cut down over and over. Um, people have been talking about this long-term care component, which, you know, is, is incredibly important as if it is a, like a window dressing or, or like decoration, a fucking bobblehead of, of yeah. public policy and you know it's like the when you discuss something like long-term care like in-home services and supports right you're discussing what we're willing to spend on that like do we really need to spend all that money on those people right and if you look at that from a family abolitionist lens you're like well that means that only the people who have family members who either have the money to hire someone out of pocket or have the resources to stay home and provide the care, right? Only those people are allocated survival under this austerity framework contained within this policy, right? So it's like, I think actually like looking at all sorts of way, like biologically interfacing um, laws and systems of governance, be it healthcare policy from abortion to what prescription what prescription drugs cost um, to, you know, housing and welfare policies and all these sort of other structural uh, social determinants of health. Like you have to always consider a family abolitionist lens when you're looking at these things, if you want to figure out if it's going to murder subaltern people or not. right? Yeah. I feel like that was almost like a, a perfect final cri de coeur. <laughs> I, I guess I, I wanted to, um, you know, perhaps quote Barrett and Macintosh one last time, because when asked, you know, what would you replace the family with? They had already in, you know, the the early 80s, a really good response, which is like nothing, you know, I <laughs> we love would that. replace it with nothing, you know, caring, sharing and loving would be more widespread if the family did not claim them for its own. That's the perfect sentiment. Absolutely. Sophie, thank you so much for for coming to hang today. It, this has been so long overdue, but you know, contextually, I couldn't think of a better time to have this conversation. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I um, I cannot wait for health communism. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> I don't know if you plug it enough on this show. It is one of the things I'm most excited about <laughs> for next year. Um, yep. I've been, I've been holding it. back until we have the pre-order link because mostly if I do plug it, I get a bunch of messages asking if I have the pre-order link and all I can say is no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've noticed on your Patreon that every single post has someone asking what is the music at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the uh I think we've gotten pretty um well known for having banger outro tracks, which you do. Um you have a Patreon too where you publish your work, which is patreon.com slash repro utopia, right? Thank you very much for plugging it. Yeah. I do not make any money from any university. Um and uh I am dependent on basically 
that income and my writing and speaking fees and whatever. So, so yeah, if you want to support an independent scholar, uh, <laughs> support Sophie on Patreon. Um, you can pick up Full Surrogacy Now, now in paperback from Verso, starting uh, as of this month, right? It just came out. Yeah, it looks really good, actually. I'm pleased with the new design. I love the new cover, yeah. But um, and if people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at Repro Utopia as well. And Sophie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back soon. Listeners, if you want to support the show and get access to the weekly bonus episode, which now comes out on Tuesdays, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, tweet about your favorite episodes or follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. The cap of my big house of pounds, the sweat on the way down. They pot with customs bastards, hang around like clowns. They are containers and their drivers. For their wages, sometimes tons shirt sleeves, sometimes tons shirt sleeves. Stop!